This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Can't Touch This, the memoir of a disillusioned music executive. And joining me from the New York City area is Wayne Edwards. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Thank you, Jay, for having me. I appreciate it. You have a fascinating background, and your book is full of uh, wonderful personal stories plus some uh, cautionary tales. Share with my listeners when you began your journey into the music industry. How old were you? What did you first start doing? Uh, I I guess I was about 25. Uh, My background was I, I went to school to become a journalist, so I was writing and writing for various publications, and and through that writing, through all that freelance writing, I met publicists at various record companies because my focus was on entertainment. And I got a call one day. I was about 25 years old and got a call one day asking if I'd be interested in interviewing for the newly created position of staff writer for CBS Records Black Music Marketing Division. And, you know, for me, it was like a dream come true, especially when they said an expense account came with it. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it can't get any better than can't this. Better I was writing. I was writing about music, and I was in, intimately involved with artists who, you know, all of a sudden I'm calling them at home and meeting with them, and it was fantastic. You uh, you worked with Ashford and Simpson, a, a very well-known uh, group uh, duo in the uh, 80s and 70s uh, what was your relationship with them and uh, how did uh, how did that relationship develop well Ashton and Simpson I, I met uh, they were obviously you know like one of my favorites from a recording standpoint and performing standpoint uh, but I got a chance to work with them in the uh, mid 80s when I went to Capitol Records as vice president for A&R Black Music and they were already signed to the label uh, but the relationship was a little rocky. Uh, they they weren't having the type of success that they had enjoyed at Warner Brothers where they were before, and uh, and uh, it was interesting because when I took the position of vice president, uh, my, one of my marching orders was to convince Ashford and Simpson to use an outside producer, which they had never done. So I knew I said, "Wow, this is going to be challenging." So so actually. Our first meeting, which was over dinner at a, at a restaurant in Manhattan, I had to break the news to them that we wanted them to consider using an outside producer. So needless to say, you know, these two superstar, legendary songwriters and performing artists uh, now have this young kid sitting in front of them whose track record was really nothing at that point, uh-huh. sitting in front of them telling them how to manage their career moving forward. Wow. It, it did not go exactly well. <laughs> I, can, uh, yeah. I, can, so, I can imagine. So, uh, that so was the a... relationship went from, from rocky to real sour real fast. Now, the 80s was a difficult time for that uh, particular uh, production uh, in uh, part of the industry as well, was it not? Well, the industry was changing. You know, the the music scene was changing. Rap was picking up steam. Uh, you know, and the, and those wonderful 
legendary love songs that people like Ashton and Simpson were writing were becoming kind of yesterday's news. And it was challenging, you know, for any artist. And, and I've worked with so many great artists over the years. And, and the one thing you realize, it's like being an athlete. Uh, I look at it as, you know, Father Time catches up with pretty much every artist. There's only but so many Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney's out there. That's true. Right? That's the, true. The, the rest of the artists, you know, they have their one or two hits, and then they fade away. And Ashton and Simpson was somebody who had a string of hits uh, over a long period of time. So they had a well-established, uh, already legendary career. Uh, but, yeah, the 80s was a difficult time. And the economy and the industry was taking a downturn, which uh, so the overall industry was having a tough time. Uh, it was an interesting period to to be involved in the industry. And you mentioned George Clinton and uh, the last big hit that he wrote, and I don't remember it, but uh, it certainly had a catchy title. Uh, Do Fries Come With That Shake? Yeah, Do Fries Go With That Shake, which <laughs> uh, came out, <laughs> came out. I, I want to say, maybe about 86. Or so, and and it wasn't a huge hit. It got some airplay. It wasn't a huge hit, but as I like to say, what it's probably best remembered for is that uh, former Miss America Vanessa Williams made her recording debut, her pop recording debut. Anyway, on on that song of all people, you know, you try to picture Vanessa Williams with George Clinton. It doesn't quite add up, but she was actually singing on that song. Incredible. You you have the word disillusioned in your title, or in your subtitle. Share with my listeners a little of your journey since leaving that uh, A&R Records. You mentioned in the, your fir- very first chapter, which is an unusual way to start a book, it's called, uh, is titled The End, and uh, that was the end of your career with A&R, is that correct? Uh, it was 80s? the end of my career, yes, with A&R, and, uh, and I start the book with a conversation that I had with the president at the time of Capitol Records, and, uh, and, and he was firing me. Hmm. And, uh, and, and in part because I, I hadn't signed that mega hit, I, I had signed some artists who were making inroads and getting their name out there and, and making waves in the industry. But the bottom line at the end of the day is, are, are we selling enough records to keep this company going? Right. And I, I was falling short in that area until I signed MC Hammer, and uh, and his first album for Capital, Let's Get It Started, was on its way to platinum when I had this conversation with the president. So I, I felt like, wow, you know, if you were going to fire me, you should have done this a while ago because now I'm handing you this success and you're kicking me out the door. And of course, Hammer's next album, Can't Touch This, you know, went through the roof. Through the roof, absolutely. And remains one of the biggest selling rap albums of all time. Um, but yeah, but since leaving leaving Capitol Records, I, I followed my heart and my first love, which was writing, and actually became a correspondent for People Magazine on the West Coast, and had four wonderful years doing that, and then got an offer out of the clear blue to. Uh, well, I, I worked with Michael Jackson. I guess I shouldn't leave that part out. You should. I, I was publicist with Michael Jackson for a year and went to Africa with him for his project Africa in 1992, which was an incredible experience for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, any incredible inside stories you uh, might want to share that you uh, have in your book about that trip? 
Well, I, I think obviously the big one, and, and I want people to like really look at the book and get it, is uh, when we were leaving for Africa that, that morning, it was a Monday morning, and it was you know like my first trip with him. I, I'd been with the PR firm, the Lee Salters Company, for all of a month when Lee Salters, who ran the company, says to me, did, did I mention to you that you're, and you know, he's a fast-talking older guy, did I mention right. to you that you're going to Africa with Michael Jackson in a few <laughs> weeks? And I looked at him and I said, no, Lee, you didn't mention that. Oh, yeah, 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 you're going, so, you know, you need to get ready. So so there was this whirlwind of a couple of weeks where I'm getting, you know, my shots and whatever else I needed. But then that Monday morning, we're at the airport, and we had a, you know, they had sectioned off a, a, an area of the airport just for Michael and his plane, so that he wouldn't have to walk through the terminal. And uh, as his car is pulling up, and there's a slew of photographers there just waiting to take his picture, as his car is pulling up, one of his longtime confidants, uh, a fellow by the name of Bob Jones, who has since passed, uh, uh, said to me, listen, you know, when, when Michael gets out the car, he has a young friend in the car with him who we call the package. And Michael will get out one side, and while the photographers are busy keying in on him and taking pictures, the package will get out of the car on the other side and just very indiscreetly get on the plane. Hmm. Uh, so I, I, I had this moment of, wait, wait a minute, am I in the right place? Am I, you know, uh, suddenly my trip, which I was thinking of this fantastic, amazing experience, I'm going to Africa, which I always wanted to do, and I'm going with Michael Jackson, which I never dreamed of doing. Mm. And now I'm dealing with the fact that he's got this young boy on the plane. And uh, it, it, I'll, I'll say it turned my stomach, but I, and I'll encourage people to buy the book and see how that story turns out yeah get the inside uh, story it was <laughs> excuse me yeah get the inside story get it directly from the book the the total oh yeah yes you have other uh insights in your book what did you find as a whole do you feel like your foray into the music industry has been a pleasurable one or one that was more challenging than uh, you anticipated uh, i i think it was both it, it was pleasurable from the standpoint of, you know, I, I traveled the world and traveled the world on other people's money, which is always a nice way to do it. Absolutely. But I, I traveled the world. I, I had wonderful experiences. I ate in the best restaurants. I, I stayed in the best hotels and, and literally with the exception of, of Asia, saw pretty much the rest of the world. Uh, so I, I thought it was an amazing experience and nothing that I would ever say, you know what, I wish I had done that. It, it changed my life tremendously and helped me get to where I am today in a very different arena. But the challenge was partly my own naivete. I, I, I was a musician when I was younger, and I just had this belief, which was uh, further buoyed by a, a fantastic music teacher that I had in junior high school, that music connects people. Music sort of breaks all sorts of racial barriers, ethnic barriers, religious barriers, all of that. And so I went into the music industry a bit naive, thinking that, wow, you know, uh, now I'm in this industry, and I can have an impact on sort of reaching across boundaries and changing people's perceptions and stepped into an industry that, much to my dismay, just by the very nature of the way it's set up, which is 
of course, pop music divisions, which is a euphemism for white, black music divisions, it, it was more segregated than society at large. And, mm. and that, to me, was very challenging and not something I expected, although in hindsight I, I should have, but that was my own naivete walking in. So that, to me, was very disappointing and, and, uh, and had a lot to do with my disillusionment as a music executive. Any interaction with uh, high-profile people like Marvin Gaye and other uh, black artists in the industry? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I work closely with Marvin Gaye, Gladys Knight, Earth, Wind & Fire, a host of others. Marvin was probably, Marvin Gaye was probably the most complex, fun, frustrating, and, uh, and, and at the end of the day, tragic figure. Mm that I worked with. Uh, Marvin, you know, had all the talent in the world, but he was one of these people I'm convinced, and others have said the same thing, that he was one of these people who felt that to be a true artist, you had to suffer, because out of your suffering came your art your and your emotion and your pain. And uh, a, a terrific guy, but he had a drug habit that just would not go away, and, and it took him under, and it was sad to see. Uh, there were some funny moments around that, if it, I, which I'll share one quick example. When he finally went on tour, this was the sexual healing single had exploded, of course, uh, and it was his first single for Columbia Records. And he went on tour, and, and the, first, uh, the first night, which was in San Diego, the reviews came back horrendous. So my boss, who had signed him, said, you know, you need to go to San Francisco, which was the next date, and see what's going on, because we can't have Marvin out there if he's, you know, sounding terrible. So I fly to San Francisco, and, and it was two shows in one night. I got there for the first show, and he was absolutely amazing. I had never seen him live, and he was brilliant. The band was great. He was in great voice. He was into it. He had the crowd eating out of his hand. And then that show ends, he goes backstage, I follow him to his dressing room to, you know, just see how he's doing and commend him on a great show. And by the time I get to the dressing room, he's already got like a plate of cocaine and Ouch. he's hitting the lines and, you know, he's getting spaced out. And at one point I said to him, I said, wow, I said, Marvin, that, that was a great show. So he said, oh, you, you liked it? And he talked very soft. He said, oh, you liked it? I said, oh, yeah, man. I said, you were really on it. And I, I'll give you the, the clean version. He said, well, good, because I'm off it now. Bleep him on the late show. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And he went out, and as brilliant as he was in the early show, that's how terrible he was in the late show. Ouch. And he just didn't care. And he just ran through the show like it was something he had to do so he could get back to getting high. And it was sad. Sad story. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Great read, though. You have uh, 202 pages. Uh, Wayne, how long did it take? Did you write from, uh, I don't know, from notes you had accumulated over the years, or was this just from memory? Uh, these were mo mostly memory. There were some documents that I had uh, put aside from my year with Michael in case anyone wanted to challenge anything. Sure. Uh, but mostly these are stories that I've been telling people over the years, you know, family members and friends and Finally, he said, you know what, I should, I should put this on paper. And 
that's what it is. So so it wasn't the the challenge wasn't so much in writing it. The challenge was in finding the time to write it, and you know, and keeping consistent with it. And uh, but I, I'm so glad I was able to do it, and I'm so glad it's out there. And I encourage people to to read it if you want to get some great insight into the industry. If you want to get a perspective that you won't find in any of the other music industry books out there. Can't touch this is a terrific read. Wayne, thank you for sharing your insight into the music industry and an area that many of us uh, have a curiosity about, some great, uh, great stories. The title of the book, again, is Can't Touch This. Uh, author Wayne Edwards has shared his insight into the music industry and his background as a disillusioned music executive. Thank you again, Wayne, for joining me today. Sir, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Well, they can go to authorhouse.com. They can go to Amazon.com. They can go to BarnesandNoble.com, and it's available. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing your story, and we hope to hear from you in the future and uh, maybe get some additional stories that you haven't shared in this book in uh, any follow-up that might come. Again, the title, Can't Touch This, my guest, Wayne Edwards. Thank you for having me, Jay. My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Miles from Home, The Journey of a Lifetime, an autobiography by my guest author, Philip L. Woods, who joins me from Florida in the United States. Welcome, sir, to the program. Uh, thank you. This is Glad a, to be here. This is a fascinating book, uh, t- 310 pages. Uh, when you say it's a journey of a lifetime, you actually, how long did it take you? And uh, share the premise of your book. What is this about? Well, uh, the book is about my life. It started out, it took me 23 years uh, to actually write the book, uh, uh, I grew up very poor and uh, was sent to live with my grandfather, who was 68 years old, batching by himself, and I was an 11-year-old bedwetter. I didn't want a 68-year-old man to live with, and he didn't want an 11-year-old bedwetter. So uh, mm. anyway, we were stuck with each other. It was a very, very lonely time in my life. Uh, I ended up, all I wanted was somebody to love me. And uh, ultimately, as uh, I grew uh I did end up getting married and finding somebody to love me. And uh, I got to live the American dream. Uh, 
I started out poor, and I ended up now I'm living uh, pretty well and very happy. Uh, so my life has taken some very good turns. Uh, I have uh, uh, some political views, and after I retired, I decided to walk across America. Uh, so I walked from uh, uh, east to west, from Londontown, Maryland, to San Francisco and across the Golden Gate Bridge and invited America to walk with me. And when you say and, uh, and when you say walked across America, you're not talking about taking a casual stroll here and there. You actually physically started in one place and didn't stop until you got to the other side. Is that is that uh, an accurate description of your of your journey? Well, that is almost an accurate uh, description. Uh I started out and uh I did not finish straight through. I had to stop for business reasons, funerals, graduations, weddings, uh, and stuff like that, and, and family stuff. And at the time, I was uh, still working a little bit, so I would have to take a little time off. So it actually over a two-year period, but I walked every step of the way. I did not miss one single step. And were you a teenager yeah. when this was taking place or a little older? I was 66 years old when I started wow. from east to west, and uh, so then uh, as I went north to south, uh, I was 72 years old when I made the journey from uh, uh, Canada to Key West, Florida. Uh, for, so, the, for, for the yes, and I every step, every step of the way. For the benefit of my listeners, and for me as a person who is aging. How did you have the energy and the strength to begin the journey and to maintain that pace to get it done? Well, I think determination. Uh, I was uh, uh, concerned and still am concerned about uh, the things that are happening in our country. And uh, I wanted to uh, see how other people in the United States felt and see if they felt the same way I did. You know, I felt like the United States uh, needs a lot of... uh, uh, repair, and uh, uh, we need to begin to have some uh, different thoughts. And so I, as I started out, I talked to people, and I found that a lot of people are uh, exactly like, felt exactly like I felt, that, uh, you know, our leaders uh, were not really taking us in the right direction and were not really addressing the problems of our time. And uh, so I just felt like... Uh, we needed uh, a lot of reform in this country. We st- I still feel that way. I feel like we need a lot of reform. We need political reform. We need educational reform. Uh, you know, I would like to see our colleges uh, teach our children how to make our system better, not how to beat our system. You know, it seems to me like that our kids are being taught how to beat the system. Yes. And a system will not uh, stand if, uh, if, if, if that is continues on sure just different uh different reforms and uh so uh i was uh now you really unlike people that i met that encouraged me to go on and uh did did you inspired did you have people i met along the way inspired me did you have sponsorship i mean this is uh this not only is a, a a strenuous activity that you engaged in but also a costly endeavor uh, did you have sponsorship? Uh, did you have people that uh, that knew of your your journey and followed you on your trip, or how how was that uh, possible? Well, I, I did not have sponsorship. Uh, the reason I didn't have sponsorship, uh, I wasn't sure I could make it myself. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Uh, but uh, after uh, about 200 miles, uh, we were in a motel room in Winchester, Virginia, and, and I asked my wife, I said, do you think we can do this? And, and she said, well, I know we can. So wow. uh, from that, uh, we continued on and never, ever looked back. There was never a doubt. There was never a day that I would wish I was someplace else or that never a day that I didn't feel like I could do it, you know. You you had a rather you you mentioned earlier that you had a a very difficult start in life. Uh, your family was, by some standards, considered dysfunctional. Your dad was an alcoholic. Am I correct in in sharing that story? Yes, that is correct. My father was a very bad alcoholic. Actually, he passed away at age forty-seven from oh, cirrhosis my. of the liver. Incredible. Uh, yeah, died in the back seat of a sheriff's car on the way to the hospital. So, and your your family yep, heritage, uh, though, is from England. Uh, your 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 name Woods is an English name, English uh, history. And uh, do you have uh, have you gone back into your history? How far back does your family uh, go as far as its uh, residence in the United States or North America? Well, I, I I don't I can't really say for sure. I think some of my on the wood side of my family, I think some of my people fought with George Rogers Clark. They came down the Ohio River and and uh, I think my great 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 grandfather uh, found a woman in Louisville. They actually established Louisville, Kentucky, uh, wintered there. And uh, so I'm thinking that maybe uh, I'm a descendant of James S. Woods, who was uh, the left hand man of uh, George Rogers Clark. And I think they fought Indians uh, back in that time through uh, through Indiana, and that's of course where I'm from. Yes, that's that's incredible. You you uh, have shared your your story, your journey across the the, the country, three hundred and ten pages. What do you think is going to be the most astounding or exciting part of that journey that you've shared? Well, I think uh, uh, number one, if uh, there's a lot of alcoholism in the world, and uh, I was just one of those that did it, but I think a lot of people can relate to the alcohol part of my story. Uh, but I think the major uh, part that uh, everyone's going to love or dislike or not like is, is, is my political views <laughs> and uh, and uh, I stand by those and uh, and will defend that and, and with anyone and I'm it's fun so yeah uh, I'm proud to be, I'm proud to be an American uh, I love America and uh, we're very lucky to be free a lot of people have died to keep us free and uh, I honor those people your your book there are some underlying themes of course there's the the obvious warning about the dangers of alcohol and how it impacts a family but also the inspiration of your journey which uh, is there another story or underlying theme that you wanted to share as you began telling your tale well i i think that uh, all of the people have a lot to give, and everybody everybody counts. Everybody's important. Uh, it would be really great if everyone wrote their own story. That's how history is recorded for your families. Uh, and I, I'm I encourage everyone to participate in uh, letting everybody know who you are. And, and uh, also, I, I really like people being active and busy and taking part and uh, controlling your future 
uh, I think that's very, very important. And uh, have fun along the way. Don't be afraid to laugh or joke. Or I, I do. I have a lot of fun. I'm a jokester. Uh, and when you're out of the way, uh, uh, I think life just seems easier. I think you're right. You have titled it Miles from Home. Why that title? What is the significance of the Miles from Home? Well, it just never never seemed like I had a home. You know, I was always away from home. <laughs> mm. And uh, I actually didn't have running water until I was 16 years old. So, <laughs> uh, so it, but, you know, you... That's not that story in itself. There are a lot of people who have hardships just as hard as mine, uh, but they haven't written. And uh, on their behalf, I've written it. So uh, hope everybody who gets my book and everybody should read my book, by the way. And and uh, uh, once you read it, uh, if you don't like it, let me know. If you do like it, let me know. You know, I'm, I'm I love to hear from people. So, well, Phil, uh, how long did it take you to to complete your your task of of uh, sharing your story, the 310 pages, and uh, and uh, was it taken from notes that you had or just from memory? Well, uh, basically from memory. I had a few notes, not very many, uh, but uh, my memory is, is uh, pretty good. I, I mean, I, I believe every word that I've written. Uh, it's true to the best of my knowledge. Uh, and and I'm a very knowledgeable person. So. <laughs> <laughs> and how how long did it take you, Phil? How long did it take? To, how long did it take to to write your book to complete it? Well, I, I, again, I started 23 years ago. Oh boy! And uh, I'd write a little bit, and uh, my story was so damn sad. I mean, you, you have to relive it. I mean, when you write it, re, you relive it. So. Uh, I would begin to shed tears, and I'd have to throw it back against the wall and let it go for a while, and and, uh, and then I'd come back at it. So I took, uh, you know, 10 or 15 hitches at it and finally got through the tough part. Once I got through my youth, <laughs> and uh, it, it became easier to write. And then uh, at the end of the book, uh, when I, after my walk, uh, the book uh, was actually pretty easy, and it didn't take me very long. I would say probably... Six months to a year. Six months to a year. How long did it take you to, uh, I mean, how long ago did you do the journey from Canada to the southern part of, of the United States? Okay, well, I'm 77 today, okay. and I was 72 when I went from uh, Canada to Key West. Absolutely amazing. This is this is a fascinating story that you have shared, not only your life story, but also the other insp- inspiring thoughts. And just the fact that you began a journey of this size is, to me, just uh, almost fictional. But I, I, I believe you. I believe you actually did this in real life. So thanks for sharing that story. Were there challenges in getting this completed? Uh not so much. I've gotten help uh, from different people on that and uh, help from my publicist. So uh, uh, not really. Uh, a little bit expensive, but I, no, I got I got the help that I needed, I feel like. And, and uh, we've put out uh, a really, I think, a really good book that uh, is very readable. And uh, Hope people enjoy reading my book. Would you also call it? Would you also call it, call it besides uh, an autobiography, an adventure tale? Uh, yes, I would. It, 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 definitely, my life has been an adventure. My life's been full of uh, failures. Uh, 
I certainly haven't had success all my life. I've had, uh, I, I would consider myself probably an entrepreneur uh, with entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I've uh, explained in the book that, uh, you know, I, I've had a lot of failures. Not all of my stuff I touch is uh, successful. So don't be afraid of failures. Uh, get your butt back up and <laughs> dig back in again. You know? all right. <laughs> Some great advice. The title of the book, again, is Miles from Home, The Journey of a Lifetime. An autobiography by my author guest, Philip L. Woods, who has joined me from Florida. Philip, where do I get copies of your book? Uh, you can get uh, copies of my book from anywhere, Amazon. Uh, you can actually, you can even order it from me if you want to. But, all, but Barnes & Noble, uh, Google, uh, all, all the places, and it's uh, out in all forms. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, electronically... Uh, paperback, hardback, uh, and uh, I'm getting a lot of great reviews off of the book. I will say that. I'm, I'm uh, impressed with all the great reviews I'm getting. Uh, so I would uh, encourage people to take uh, a serious look at the book uh, and let me hear from them. You also have a website or two. Uh, would that be, uh, is it, are they active uh, currently? Yes, that is. That is currently. We're continually improving it. It's a relatively new website, but uh, uh, I like it a lot. I think I have a very good website. I encourage my people to go to philiplwoods.com, and uh, you'll find me there. Excellent. Thank you for sharing your time with me today, and uh, congratulations on what I think is a, a, a an incredible achievement. Uh, traversing the United States north, south, east, and west on foot. I am still amazed by that and uh, honored that you took time to visit with me and share your story. Well, thank you very much for listening to me, uh, and uh, I, I wish you all the success in, in the world, and, and all the people who buy my book, I, I would uh, hope that they would let me hear from them. Give me a review. Let everybody review my book. Great idea. Thank you, sir, for joining me again today for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled, It's Your Life, Own It. No blame, no excuses. And joining me from Texas, Dr. Lasharda Beckwith. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Well, thank you for having me on your show. Dr. It's Beck, a pleasure to be here. Dr. Beck, with this is your second book. Uh, you have uh, a background of, uh, what is it? Share with my listeners why this book came out and what uh, was the motivation in putting it together? Sure. I've uh, written uh, inspirational types of material before for the last, I guess, 30 years, uh, just in speaking engagements and in writing blogs and um, just everyday kinds of stuff. I also do a thought for today uh, on various types of social media. But uh, my first book was back in 2010, and that book was When You're Happy With You. And as I was writing that book, I had a lot of material over the years of things that had happened to me. Uh, out in my career, in my personal life, in just uh, moving up in life, whether it was a corporate ladder or just becoming uh, a person who came into my own. So as I would counsel and mentor people, I would hear people that would uh, ask me to mentor them. They would do some of the things I said, and others wanted information, but they never did anything. And then I would hear complaints later about not being able to live the life that I'd always dreamed of. So material over the years uh, became available to me just in my journaling, and that's how It's Your Life, Own It, No Blame, No Excuses came about. It was about stop complaining about what you say you want and do something about it. Uh, very important advice. You have a what would be termed by the general public a ministry background in addition to uh, other things that you're involved in. Oh, yeah. Uh, ministry background is kind of strong. <laughs> I'm more of a, I'm a business person, leadership expert. That's what my doctorate is in. But I've always, I have a strong Christian faith, and I've always been involved in some type of uh, activity, and I call it ministry within uh, my faith. And so that kind of drives, my faith drives a lot of what I write and what I do. You men you also mentioned this to be an inspirational book, so it does uh, weave in some of the inspirational thoughts from ministry as well as your practical applications. I um, practical applications would be, you know, uh, I help, I, and in fact, in the book, there's a journal, and I provide steps with people to be able to kind of evaluate, assess their lives, assess their attitudes, uh, the, their, uh, the way they think, uh, their thought processes, the things that have affected them uh, over the years. I try to take people back to some type of major event that may have uh, had some influence on how they think. And in ministry, I'm able to incorporate uh, the same... T it's, it, to me, it's no different because I see... Um, Ministry and my life, they are not compartmentalized. It's all integrated together. So my faith influences everything I do, and that's at work, and that's uh, at church, or that's in the community. I have a nonprofit organization, Professional Christian Women. And these, uh, this is an interdenominational type group, and a lot of us, uh, you, you know, we we believe that everything we do is influenced by our faith. Now, in in uh, companies, of course, you can't talk about religion or anything like that. I don't know that that's necessary, though. I think it's all about how we live and how we love and how we treat people. Two hundred sixty-four pages, forty chapters. How long did it take to to put this into print, uh, Doctor Beckwith? Oh, gosh. Um, I started writing It's Your Life, Own It probably back in 2012. 
Um, and so, again, it was released uh, in uh, 2014. So it took me a little while to put it together because I was trying to get my thoughts together. And, again, I was pulling a lot of information from journals that I had um, uh, written in over uh, a couple of years, over several years, years, actually. I had a lot of material left over from when I wrote my first book, When You're Happy With You. And I wanted the message to continue. I wanted people, first of all, to be okay with the person that they looked at in the mirror and that they were okay just because God made them that way and they didn't need to be defined by other people. It's easier said than done, but I want people to understand that. So in that book, I give people a lot of uh, encouraging words, but also exercises to, to kind of help bring them out of being defined by other people. And in the second book, It's Your Life, Own It, No Blame, No Excuses, it's about, okay, now, let's take that next step. Let's not uh, allow what's happened in our past, not, let's not allow uh, our minds or other people to say to us, okay, you can't do that, and you say, okay, I can't do that because somebody else has said so. It's you. It's your life. And so live the life that you you deserve. Live the life that God has put in front of you. So don't make excuses about it. Don't blame others. It's my skin color. It's because I'm a woman. It's because I don't have an education. It's because, because, because. No, none of those things matter. What matters is that you believe in yourself and you take hold of that belief and move forward with it. Would you describe your book as uh, something that would appeal to a broad audience? I know you have mentioned faith and uh, that as a foundation in your own personal life and also have referred to it some in your book, but really your book is uh, it, it, it has a wider spectrum of audience than that, does it not? It absolutely does, and I think because when people see me, I know that uh, when folks read about me or they see me and stuff, they may think that what I do is minister to women, but that's not the case. When I'm speaking to large groups, it's a group of mixed gender, and I believe that any person that struggles with uh, feeling in, uh, in feeling insecure or inferior, I hate using that word inferior, but right. feeling less than, feeling that they just can't do it, uh, they can't rise above. I believe that the, the book really will resonate with those kinds of folks, anybody. The second thing is, is that I'm real careful about, um, certainly my faith comes out in the book, but I'm very careful about only talking religion because that's not what I'm about. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe, uh, you know, I'm a believer, but I recognize that there are many people that are not. And so I think the way I've kind of written this book would be for any person that would pick it up and say, okay, that makes sense. And they may not be a believer, and that's okay. Fantastic. Your chapters, uh, chapter two caught my attention, Lottery Anyone. What is that chapter about, and how does that <laughs> appeal to people? Well, see, that's one chapter I think anybody can relate to. Uh, the chapter is about, uh, and actually <laughs> it's about uh, something that, uh, a joke between me and my husband. My husband buys lottery tickets all the time. I <laughs> never buy lottery tickets. And I can be really judgmental about people that buy lottery tickets. And I, uh, I tend to, when I hear folks talk about buying lottery tickets, um, 
and they just can't can't move forward without going to get a lottery ticket every day or every week, whatever it is. Hmm. My thing is is that you know if you're always waiting for you, you're you're waiting to win the lottery or you're waiting you know for your ship to come in and you're waiting for these by chance things to happen, you could be waiting a very, very long time. So work hard, put some goals in place, get out there and put some feet to those goals and start moving towards those. And yeah, if you buy a lottery ticket and you just happen to win, good. But I don't sit back waiting, uh, believing that I'm going to win the lottery. And so what I do in that chapter is I show statistics about uh, you know, the amount of money that's spent on lottery tickets every year and, uh, you know, how people could just be taking those simple dollars and in, and investing those dollars back into really building wealth and living the life that they want rather than wasting it on lottery tickets. Now, I make it a point to say I'm not judging people, and I hope I don't come across like that. I'm not judging people that buy lottery tickets, but we have to determine whether or not we're going to live a life of chance. Okay, one day I'll win the lottery or a life of productive action. I'm going to plan out some of the things that I want to achieve in life, and these are the steps that I'm putting in place to keep me focused and keep me on point towards that goal. And Dr. Beckwith, your early life, there must have been someone or something that motivated you to be a positive person. Uh, were you always positive, or is that something that you learned to become? I, be- I believe, I would love to say that I'm, I was always positive. I think that it was a learned uh, behavior, and I say that because it, I don't ever remember, remember being negative, but I will tell you this, and this is this comes about in my first book. I, my mother died. She was 28 years old. I had I was forced to go and live with my grandparents. I was raised by, by you know, older grandparents that were strong Pentecostal faith-based people. And so I resented a lot of that. And I did have an attitude and blame God for taking my mom away so soon. My father was never around. My, the father that I knew was my grandfather. And so uh, I don't want to say that I was always a positive person. But somewhere along the line, um, you know, I started to change. And I think this is it. You know, in high school and different places where people could have spoken life into me, could have encouraged me, um, I really didn't have that until I ran into a coach, Regina Hall, and she and she's in my book, uh, who just took an interest in me, and she was just wonderful. And she did encourage me, and I wanted to be just like her. Hmm. So... I don't know when I changed, but somewhere along the line, I started to believe that, you know, I could do it. And so I just started to, and I felt, and maybe this is the answer to your question, because I didn't have that except for my grandparents, of course. Somewhere along the line, when I started to accomplish things and could see that I could do it, I just felt that I wanted to do that for other people that wouldn't have that. So people that may have felt disenfranchised or felt that nobody cares about me, nobody's going to want to see me successful. So I wanted to be that person that would speak that type of life into them. And maybe that was my my moment of uh, change there. Phenomenal. You have coined a word, booms. What does that mean, and how are my listeners going to benefit from booms? 
uh, booms, those are bold obstacles that you're overcoming. You know, that's what booms are. It's I think uh, people think that when they go through something that, they're the only ones that are going through it. And that's just not the case. We have all faced something that's just overwhelming, these obstacles that we feel like can't be moved. But if we would put in, if we would just kind of put those obstacles into perspective, I say, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You take mm-hmm. one little piece at a time. Uh-huh. So when we see these these major obstacles that just seem immovable, we we freeze. We we feel like nobody else understands, and I can't possibly get over this. But you can, if you think about something major that's happened in your life. We've all had these. They're overwhelming initially, but guess what? You're still standing today. Somehow you got through it. Somehow you did. Either you had this inner strength that said, I'm not going to, I'm I'm just not going to back down from this. Or you had, maybe it's your faith. Maybe it's a person. Maybe you just had this inner resolve that said, I am going to overcome this, whatever it was. And I'm not saying that we don't get knocked down. Of course we get knocked down. And I'm not saying that we don't ever get discouraged. Of course that happens. But I want people to understand that booms happen to all of us, and we can overcome those. But you gotta, you got to stand firm. I don't even mind the person falling down and saying, oh, my God, I can't take this. Fall down for a minute, but get on back up, brush yourself off, and say, okay, now what? And just keep moving. Me and some girlfriends, we have this joke, and one of the things we say, keep, keep it moving. And what that means is just, you know what, no matter what happens, Keep moving. Keep going. Keep the momentum going. Just keep moving. What are the four C's of your foundational aspects of uh, inspiring people to uh, to succeed? Okay, so people that don't believe probably will dismiss Christ, but I'm going to tell you what my four C's are. My four yeah. C's will always be Christ, uh, overcoming challenges, um, uh, making sure that you understand the importance of being uh, committed and consistent, those types of things. Uh, if you having courage, so I, for me, everything starts with Christ. Everything. My faith is important. And I don't mean that just to say, oh, I'm a Christian. I mean that seriously. So I take my day serious. When I get up in the morning, my first fruits, as as you would say, or as some believers understand what I'm saying, what that means is that I start my day giving thanks to God, giving thanks to Jesus Christ for just uh, the beauty of seeing another day. And I say, number two, we all have challenges, no matter what, it goes back to those booms. So you can't let those challenges overtake you. Just recognize them for what they are and move forward. you got to have the courage to be able to do that, though. My courage comes from my number one, Christ. So I recognize challenges happen. I have the courage to take risks. I'm not, a, I'm not adverse to taking risks. I recognize that I can fail. And you gotta be, you gotta have enough courage to say, you know what, I'm gonna try this thing and it may fail, but that's okay. And then I say that regardless of all, all of the things I've just mentioned, those first three, if you are not committed and consistent, 
doesn't even matter because the minute the wind blows a different way, you may say that it's okay, I got Christ. You may say that, okay, everybody faces challenges. You may say that I'm, I'm, I'm a person that I, I'm a person with courage and I'm, I'm going to overcome my fear. But if every time something harder comes up and you give up and run to the hill, then it, it just doesn't matter. So there must be consistency and commitment uh, for all of these things to be, be able to move you towards those things in life that you want to own. And I don't mean just material things, even owning your own attitude, owning your, your emotions, your state of mind, those types of things, all of those things will drive the material piece, the physical piece. I believe that. You, you know, successful people are tenacious people. There are people that don't give up when the going gets tough. And so that's all a part of that, to me, positive mental attitude. The title of the book, It's Your Life, Own It. No blame, no excuses. My guest has been Dr. Lasharnda Beckwith. Where do we get copies of your book, Dr. Beckwith? You can get my book at Amazon and BarnesandNobles.com. You can get it from the publisher, AuthorHouse.com. You can literally go to almost any website and, and order the book. For people that are in the Wachahatchee, Texas area, you can go to the bookstore out at Southwestern AG University. Uh, the book is there. So there's just a multitude of places you can get it. Or they can contact me at uh, www.LashondaBeckwith.com. And certainly they can get a book there for me. Fantastic. And let me spell your name for those who may not quite get it. It's L-A-S-H-A-R-N-D-A, last name B-E-C-K-W-I-T-H. And put a doctor in front of that and you'll uh, be able to access the website. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. I know there's going to be another motivational book in the future. It just sounds like you have lots of energy and lots of uh, desire to, to, to share. <laughs> I do. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Pleasure visiting with you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.